Well, hey, good morning, Harvest. How are we doing? Good. Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, can you open them up to Luke chapter 15? We're going to be in Luke chapter 15 this morning. Um, if you don't have a Bible, again, you can just feel free to raise your hand. We have people coming down the aisles who love to uh, give you a copy of God's Word. If you're visiting or, or this is your first time here, my name is Calvin. I'm the lead pastor here at Harvest. And, and I'm just so thankful that you are hanging out with us, that you're worshiping with us. I hope you're blessed by our time together. And if you've been with us this summer, um, we've been going through a series on the teachings of Jesus, specifically the parables. And, and parables are stories that Jesus would tell that would have a hidden message and a hidden meaning. And, and it was some of Jesus' most brilliant teachings, some of the most memorable stories in the entire Bible are the parables that Jesus told. And um, today we're, we're hitting like the king of all parables. We're going to talk about one of the most um, well-known stories in the entire Bible, and that is the parable of the prodigal son. This is probably the most famous teaching Jesus ever did. Um, most people, even if you don't have a church background, are very familiar with this story. There are um, many non-Christian authors who would say that this is the greatest short story that has ever been written or ever been told. And um, so we're going to see that in Luke 15. And if you have your Bibles open, um, look at verses 1 and 2. And um, this is such a familiar story, but if you don't understand the context of what's happening, I think you're going to miss some of the major themes that Jesus is trying to communicate. So if you have your Bibles, look at verses 1 and 2, because this is going to set up the context of the entire parable. Here's what it says. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. All right, so Jesus is in a unique spot right now. Uh, it says that the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus. They liked the message of Jesus. They, they, they wanted the attention. They're drawing near to Jesus. And, and again, when you hear tax collectors, don't think IRS. You need to think traitor. You couldn't be anything worse in Jewish culture than a tax collector because that means you sold out your own people to collect taxes for the Roman government. And the Roman government, um, during the time of Christ, it expanded all the way from England basically to, to Asia, to India. And it's a massive, massive world power, the world power. And how do you pay to have a territory that big? You have to tax your citizens. And um, taxes was up to 90% of your income would go back to the Roman government. So these were oppressive taxes. And to be a tax collector, you're basically saying, I'm going to sell myself out and I'll be the one who takes the money from my citizens and I'll pay this government that's occupying us. And you need to understand, the Romans, they weren't like gracious, kind rulers, they were known for their brutality. They had perfected capital punishment. There are stories in, in history where when cities would rebel against the Roman Empire and Rome would put down the rebellion, they would take women, they would take children, they would take entire towns and villages, tens of thousands of people, and they would line them up on the roads and crucify them so that every 30 or 40 feet, as people would travel between cities, they would see uh, another example of someone who tried to rise up against the Roman Empire and suffered because of it. 
These were tough people. And so to portray the Jewish people to serve them, it was the worst thing you could do. And then the sinners, and, and, and I think when we read this in the New Testament, we tend to view sinners as like, oh, they're, they're really sweet people. They're just misunderstood. That's not the case. They were called sinners because they were sinful people. These were people who had rejected the law of God. They rejected Moses and they were basically saying, I want to do what I want to do. I have no desire to follow God. These would be people that maybe by their occupation would have broken the law of Moses. These were the the pig farmers, right? According to Jewish um, customs or or the Jewish law, pigs were considered unclean. You weren't to touch them or interact with them. But people like, no, I can make a lot of money by doing it. So I'm going to do it anyways. It was shaking their fists at the law of God. These would have been the people with the criminal records, with the reputations, who weren't accepted by society. These would have been people who, who um, were, were just the, the, the sketchy people. So they're drawing close to Jesus. But then like around that, you've got the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And they're kind of standing there cross-armed being like, man, can you believe Jesus is hanging out with these people? Who does he think he is? So there's some social tensions that Jesus is trying to navigate. He's, te- he's dealing with both sides of the social spectrum. And what he does, which is so brilliant, he's going to tell one story that addresses the heart of both groups of people absolutely perfectly. And that is the story of the prodigal son. So if you have your Bibles, look at Luke 15, starting at verse 11. Follow along as I read. And he said, talking about Jesus... He said, and there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided the property between them. Now, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey to a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine rose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him in the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Okay, so this story has three main characters in it. There's a younger son, an older son, and a father. And if you have your sermon notes, you see that I've titled this message, The Three Prodigals. And I'm going to make an argument that all three of these characters are prodigals. And I want to start with the first one, the the, the most famous son, the younger son, the the, um, rebellious prodigal. And and here's some things you need to understand just from these verses. First of all, um, the, the Jewish culture was an honor culture. And here's what that means. Above all else, you honored God and then you honored your mother and father, specifically your father. So the boys in the family, what they would do is, is what they would live with the, the father. They, even after they got married, oftentimes they would live with their family and they would work the father's land. And when the father was too old to work, they would care for the father. And then when the father passed away, they would inherit the father's business. You honored your parents and you worked for them. So to say, hey, I want my inheritance and I'm bailing on you, that's basically saying like, dad, I wish you were dead. I'm out on you. It's the most unloyal, disrespectful thing you could do. Okay, and and here's the other thing you need to see. Not only did he bail on his dad, it said that he went to a far off country. Okay, and to understand this rightly, you need to have the Jewish mindset. Listen, the, the, the promised land of Israel was their national identity. God had promised this land to the Israelites, and most of their history, they'd been in captivity. So now they're in the promised land, and to leave that land and abandon it to go to a far country, it was shaking your fist at God. 
So he's disrespectful to God. He's disrespectful to his father. And then after the famine rolls in, it says that he starts to tend pigs. And again, under the, the law, pigs were not animals that, that you should touch or, or handle or work with. They were unclean. So the fact that he would go to this job, it's just like the lowest of low positions. This dude is a wreck. He is the wrongest of wrongs. And what Jesus is doing is he's addressing the tax collectors and the sinners, those in the crowd that had rebellious hearts. And they would have understood exactly who Jesus was talking to. So here's the question. How do we know today if we have rebellious hearts? Like in this story, how do I know if I'm the younger son or the older son? So what I want to do is just through this text, I want to look really quickly at three symptoms of a rebellious heart that we see in the younger brother. Here's the first. The first symptom of a rebellious heart is that I bristle under right authority. I, I know I have a rebellious heart when I bristle under right authority. Look at verse 12. You see this with the younger brother right in the text. It says, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided the property between them. So the son was rightfully under the father's authority. And the son's like, I'm out on this. Dad, I don't want you to be my boss anymore. I don't want you to be my father anymore. I want to do my own thing. I'm tired of listening to you. I'm tired of being under your authority. I want what's mine so I can go live my own life. He was saying to himself, I want to be free. All right, I think this idea of being under and submitting to right authority is something that is inherently difficult for us Americans, isn't it? Right? We are the land of the free and the home of the brave. Like we value freedom more than anything. And if anyone tries to take away our freedom, we go crazy. We're the country that started a war because someone taxed our tea. Right? We're like, oh, no, you didn't. Right? And we threw stuff in the bay and it got crazy. Right? We bristle under authority. And I think there's something in us and in, in how we're wired that we want to mistrust authority whether it's our parents or our boss or the government, and even that can flow into church leadership. This is why they shouldn't be trusted, and this is why they're, they're not good. And if I were running things, I would do it better, and I should be the ultimate judge and authority. We have a deep-seated mistrust for authority, and it's something we struggle with. I remember uh, 10 years ago when I was a youth pastor in Orlando, um, we... Uh, had a church service, it was a Sunday morning, and it was during worship, I always remember this. I'm singing a song during worship, and all of a sudden, um, a mom of, of a daughter in our youth group pulled me out because she wanted to talk to me. And I remember, like, this is weird that this mom wants to talk to me because her daughter's not even engaged in the youth group. We were a small church, so, like, I was always trying to connect with the high school students and invite them to youth group, but, like, this kid, I could never get to come to youth group. So the mom pulls me like kind of out into our foyer area and the mom's like so upset she's visibly shaking. And I'm like, what's going on with her? And, and, and here's what had happened. Um, one of my youth leaders, who was like 24, 25 years old, a grown-up, had posted on Facebook on Saturday that she went and saw the new Harry Potter movie with her in-laws. And the woman was so upset. Calvin, how could you let one of your youth leaders go and see a movie that's filled with witchcraft? And I was like, hold on a second. I'm like, first of all, I didn't go see the movie. I wasn't with them. I didn't post anything about it. Second of all, 
Th this leader is mature in the Lord. She's been a Christian for a long time. And she's an adult. I'm pretty sure she can discern what, what's good and, and what should be maybe discarded. And third of all, it's not like we brought the youth group. She just went with her family and you're mad at me about it. She's like, I don't know how anyone in the church could go see that movie and, and, and they have animals that talk like humans. So then I was kind of a smart aleck and I'm like, so you're against the Lion King too, right? Because, you know, Orlando's the, the country of Disney. And she's like, absolutely, I don't let my kids watch anything Disney. And I'm like, all right, I'm not going to win this. So um, I remember that next Tuesday, we had a staff meeting and I told our senior pastor and the chairman of the elder board was there. And I was like, hey, I just want to let you know I had this conversation. This woman was really worked up. And the, the leadership was like, you know what, Cal? We agree with you that, that she's taking this too far. Um, I don't understand why she's so upset, but they're an important family and we don't want them to get mad and leave, so you need to write an apology letter to them. And I remember being like, what exactly would you like me to apologize for? That a grown-up went and saw a PG movie? Like, are you serious? And they're like, well, Cal, you, you, you need to figure it out. So I called my dad, you know, after the meeting, and I was livid. And I was like, can you believe that this is what's happened? I can't believe they're making me do it. I'm, I'm not going to write this letter. This is insane. And my dad starts giggling on the other, like, line. And I'm like, Dad, why are you giggling? This isn't helping me right now. And he goes, I'm giggling, Cal, because you're going to write that letter. And I'm like, you're on their side too? He goes, no, I'm not on their side. But he goes, Cal, they're your authority. You have a boss. God has placed that authority in your life. You're going to honor and respect that authority even though you don't agree with it. Right? So that afternoon, I wrote a very heartfelt, non-sarcastic apology letter <laughs> because a grown-up went and watched a Harry Potter movie. I didn't want to submit under to authority, but I'm glad my dad reminded me that this isn't about the church leadership. This is about do I trust God and the authority he placed over my life. 1 Peter 2, 18 says this, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, and not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin you are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. Like, we cringe at this, don't we? But he's saying, listen, not only is it a good and gracious thing to suffer under unjust authority, he's saying we've been called to it because it's living out the example that Christ gave for us. It's something we need to grow in. Um, here's a question. How are you with the authority in your life? What's your attitude like towards your parents, towards your boss, toward the government? I remember early on in the church, I think right after we moved into this building, my dad preached a message on, you know, um, loving your enemies and blessing those who curse you. And I came up at the end of the service, I was praying with people, and, and a man approached me, and he's like, you know, Cal, your dad's talking about loving your enemies, but I got a question for you that I don't think you can answer. And I was like, what's that? He's like, what happens when the government's my enemy? And so I did what any reasonable person would do. I checked to see if he was packing, right? I'm like, this dude have a gun on him right now? Um, and then he didn't, so I felt a little bit more bold. And I was like, well, that's a you problem. You don't do anything. God's placed the government over us as an authority. We need to trust in the Lord. You submitting to your government has nothing to do with your government. It's are you going to trust the Lord? 
How are you with authority? Here's the second symptom of a rebellious heart. It's this, my life is marked with impatience and dissatisfaction. When my heart is rebellious, my life begins to be marked by impatience and dissatisfaction. Look at verse 13. It says this, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. So the son gets the inheritance and instantly he's like, I'm getting as far away as I can. I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to be by my family. I want to go do my own thing. I need to go live my own life. He's trying to get out of there. And again, you need to understand for a Jewish person to bail on Israel was like the ultimate disgrace. It was the ultimate um, shaking your fist at God. Um, We went on a um, tour of Israel with our church a year ago. Any of you guys, were any of you guys on that Israel tour we did a year ago? Yeah, a few hands. So here's the thing about that tour. Here's what I learned. You see, Americans, we think we're patriotic and we think we love our country. But once you go to Israel and you hear Jewish people talk about Israel, you realize they blow us out of the water. In fact, it's a little bit annoying. Like you're on this tour and the tour guide's like, look, these are the best olives in the entire world. And oh, this road you're driving on, it's the most efficient, best roads in the entire world. We have the best traffic in the whole world. Oh, um, this air, it's the freshest air in the whole, like everything about Israel is the best. It's like, get over yourselves. You're like the size of New Jersey. But this is their promise from God. This is their national identity. So to be dissatisfied and to leave would have just been the worst thing you could have done. Do you see how fast this is moving for the prodigal? I'm out on, on you, dad. I want what's mine. And now he's taking his money and running. And ultimately, the son had a contentment issue. He wasn't content with the role that he was called to play. He wasn't content with the father and the family that he had. He wasn't content with where he was living. He wasn't content with his job. He, he had a contentment issue. One of the things that I love to do is I just love to spend time with people who are about 10 years younger than me, people in their early 20s. And um, here's what I'm learning about, and, and I saw this in my heart too when I was young for sure. When you're in your early 20s, you're always stressed out because you believe that you've got to accomplish everything in your life and in your career in like the next four years. You're like, I've got to do it all now. I've got to climb the ladder. I've got to have my dream job. I have to have everything figured out. And so I always like hang out with kids in their 20s and I'm like, all right, so what do you do? And you just see their blood pressure start to rise. And they're like, I don't know, and it's not going great yet, and I'm still learning things, but I'm not exactly sure where God wants me to be. And like, they just start panicking. And what I tell them is, is listen, when you're in your 20s, you've got this pressure, like I've got to figure it all out now. And then when you get to 30, you realize, oh no, I've got a lot of time before retirement. And I can't screw this thing up. But what you realize is, man, you have a ton of time. So what I always tell young people is, listen, Take a breath, enjoy the season of life you're in, bloom where you're planted, be faithful, and God will open those next doors for you. But he has you in the season he has you in right now for a reason. I tell you what, are you rejoicing for the season of life you're in right now, whether it's good or difficult? Are you looking at God's blessing in your life? Or is your life marked with dissatisfaction and a lack of contentment? I just want to get to what's next. In Psalm 40, David writes, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me and he heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction and out of the miry bog and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And I think so often we're like, God, pull me up out of this miry clay. 
God, set uh, uh, my feet upon the rock. God, do something new in my heart. Give me a new song. And we skip verse 1, which is, I waited patiently on the Lord. Are you willing to wait patiently on the Lord? What if the new song that God wants to put in your heart right now is I'm going to trust you and be patient and faithful in the waiting? What if that's the best thing that God could do for your heart right now? Is your life marked by contentment? This is something we need to get better at. Here's the third. The third symptom of a rebellious heart is that present foolishness wins out over future wisdom. Present foolishness wins out over future wisdom. It says that in verse 13 that not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Went to the casino, had big parties, didn't save, didn't plan, had a lot of fun, but blew his entire inheritance. Um, When I was a sophomore in high school, I had a friend die in a car accident. And it was a Friday night. There was a party. She had been drinking. Her boyfriend had been drinking. Got in a car, not wearing seatbelts, into a tree. She was there Friday. She was gone on Monday. Listen, no one at that party had any idea or wanted there to be tragedy that night. No one had ill intentions. No, no, no one w- w- was, um, had an evil heart in that. But it was just foolish decisions only thinking about the moment. What can I get right now? What's going to make me happy? What's going to feel good? What's going to be fun? Not thinking about future consequences. You see, you need to understand the sin of the younger son was a sin of passion. What's going to make me feel good? What do I want to do? I have to do it right now. His eyes were only on himself. Foolish decisions, never once thinking about, hey, are the things that I'm doing, is it going to make me a slave to this thing? How is this going to impact my future? How is this going to impact my reputation? Am I setting myself up for future heartbreak? It was only thinking, how am I feeling right now? Present foolishness winning over future wisdom. Look at verse 14. It said, And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. Okay, here's what Jesus is doing right now. He's looking at the tax collectors and sinners and those in rebellion, and he's saying, listen, famine always follows rebellion. The son had rebelled, he had left, he wasn't thinking about the famine, but the famine always follows rebellion. R.C. Sproul, a theologian and pastor, puts it this way. He says, we want to be saved from our misery, but not from our sin. We want to sin without misery, just as the prodigal son wanted inheritance without the father. But the foremost spiritual law of the physical universe is that this hope can never be realized. Sin always accompanies misery. There is no victimless crime and all creation is subject to decay because of humanity's rebellion from God. Okay, this is how Jesus talked about it. He would tell his disciples in the gospels, I am the vine and you are the branches. I am the source of life and if you abide in me, if you stay close to me, if you hold on to me, your life will thrive and you will have joy and you will have abundance and you'll have life. But when you separate yourself from me, you're going to wither and die. Okay, but this is the lie, or this is the trick that sin always gets us with. You see, after a a branch is cut from the vine, it doesn't wither and die instantly. 
it withers slowly over a period of time. So to show this in a real tangible way, I have an orchid with me, right? This is a, a, a pretty orchid. My, um, it got it from home. My wife picked it up. And by the way, free husband advice right now. Men, if you're ever looking to get your wife flowers, I would suggest orchids. Roses die in like 10 days. Orchids, if you do it right, last like a year, right? Solid investment. Your wife is happy for way longer. Um, that's free right there. You're welcome. All right, so, so the way an orchid works is, is you see the stem, you see, you see the vine, and then the flower petals shoot off of that vine. So if I now take one of the flower petals and I pull it, I've just killed the flower, right? As I hold this thing, this thing is dead. I've just removed it from its source of life. Okay, but here's the thing right now. It doesn't look dead, does it? Still smells good. I could put this behind Pastor Marty's ear and he'd look adorable right now. It's pretty, <laughs> right? Like it looks alive and it looks beautiful, but it's dead. And here's what happens. And some of you in here right now, you're in the place between when you've removed yourself from the source of life, Jesus Christ, and when the flower withers. You see, in four days from now, if you come check out this flower petal, it's going to be dried out and it's going to be dead. There's going to be no confusion about what's going on. But there's something going on in your heart where you know you're rebelling against God and you're like, yeah, but it still looks pretty. It still smells good. It still feels all right. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, the famine's coming as soon as we remove ourselves from the source of life. This is a direct message to that first group of people. All right, let's keep going. Look at verse 17. It says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Okay, we're going to get to the father's response here in a second. But what I want to do first is I want to introduce you to the other brother. That's the older brother. And this is the self-righteous prodigal. Look at verse 25. It says, now the older son was in the field and he came and drew near the house and he heard music and dancing. And he called to one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. But you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you, filled the, you killed the fattened calf for him? All right, so the father throws a party because the son's home. And he's so overjoyed. And the older brother's working in the fields, being faithful, being the good older brother. And he hears the music and dancing. And one of the servants is like, hey, there's a party because your brother's home. 
But rather than celebrating and being happy, it says the brother gets mad and he starts to pout. And rather than celebrating what's going on with his brother, he's making it all about himself. And what you see is, in the heart of the older son, there's a self-righteousness that is equally as prodigal as the rebellious of the younger son. And so what I want to do right now is I want to talk about three symptoms of a self-righteous heart. Because I think both sets of sons are represented in this room. And I know that both sets of sons are represented in my heart depending on the week. Amen? So let's look at three symptoms of a self-righteous heart. Here's the first. I don't see myself rightly. I don't see myself rightly. And I need you to get this. Look at verse 29. He said this, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. If you take notes in your Bible, if you write things down, circle that word served. You know, in other translations, the son says, all of these years I have slaved for you. Do you see what that reveals about the older son's view of himself compared to his father? He's forgotten that he's a son. He says, listen, I've been your servant and I've been your slave and I've done what you've wanted me to do. He forgot that the father loved him simply because he was his son and he thought he had to earn through his work and his loyalty his father's love. He forgot that he had the rights of a son. He viewed himself as a servant. Okay, look here, I need you to hear me right now. You don't have to impress God. God loves you because he created you in his image. You're his child, nothing else. God's never once said, hey, you need to prove your worthiness for me. You don't have to impress God. But see, the older son forgot that. And so because he had a wrong view of his father's love for him, he got selective memory and a wrong view of himself. Look, he says, I never once disobeyed your commands. I think about how ludicrous that is, right? This older son's a grown man at this point. And and how many parents in the room believe that the older son never once in his life disobeyed his father? It's insane. It, it, It can't happen. But he's like, I've never once, I've been perfect. And so because he forgot his father's love for him, he's got to put on this false facade of strength. And look, I've deserved it. I've been perfect. I've earned it. He's viewing himself wrong. There's no humility in his heart because he believes he has to be good enough. He's not seeing himself rightly at all. Second symptom of a self-righteous heart is I believe I deserve more. Is I believe I deserve more. Look at verse 29 again. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. So he's saying, listen, I've been faithful and I've been good. An idiot boy comes home and you kill the fattened calf for him? Like you never gave me a young goat so I could have a bonfire with my buddies and you throw out everything for this kid? Who do you think you are, dad? You see how he's now accusing his father? That his father's now guilty for showing love to the rebellious one? Uh, just this week, um, I... I was hanging out with my kids, and if you don't know, I've got two daughters who are twins. They're eight. I have a son, Bo, who's six, and, and Judah, who's four. And, and I was hanging out with my girls and Bo, and I was like, all right, um, girls, it, it's time for bed. I'm like, all the kids, it's time for bed. I'm like, girls, here's what I want you to do. Go get your brothers ready for bed, and then I'll come up, and I'll pray with them, and I'll give them a kiss. But then, girls, you can go to your room, and, and you, can play on your, um, you can play on your iPad or whatever for 45 minutes before you go to sleep. 
And Bo heard this and he's like, wait a second. I've got to go to bed right now, but the girls can stay up and play. And I said, yep, they're older than you. That's how it works sometimes. And then he goes, dad, you never let me do anything fun. <laughs> and I was like, don't tempt me, bro. I'm like, I'll show you what never doing anything fun looks like. But isn't that crazy, like how extreme we can get? He's like, you've never done anything for me. I've been perfect and you've never given me anything. Think about how crazy that is. Think about the older son's life. His clothes provided for by his father. His housing provided for by his father. His job provided for by his father. The food that he ate provided for by his father. His father had been so loving and gracious towards him. But in that moment, it was like, no, 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 no. It should be about me. I deserve more. I'm better. and, and, And you're wrong for mistreating me because you've showed love to my rebellious brother. It's a really, really sick heart position. And this is something that we can so easily fall into, right? Like, man, why aren't my parents as cool as my friend's parents? Why, why is everything so easy for him? Why, why does he seem to move up the corporate ladder? Why do the bosses like him and they don't even know that I exist? Why is their marriage seemingly so easy on Facebook? Because everyone knows that that's reality, right? Um, why is it so difficult for me? We can have this thing, I deserve it easier. Okay, and then here's the third symptom. And, and this one's scary. It's I define others by their failures. When I'm self-righteous, I begin to define others by their failures. It says this, but when this this son of yours came, who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Look at the language in verse 30. Notice he doesn't say, but when my brother came home. He says, but when this son of yours came home. He's like, I want nothing to do with my brother. He's completely relationally separate from me. I've got no relationship. He's not even my brother. He's this son of yours. He's not worthy to have my blood. And then he says, but then you killed the fattened calf. How dare you? And then here's the interesting thing. It says that the, he says that the younger brother destroyed or s- spent all of his property on prostitutes. Here's the interesting thing. The older brother hadn't met the younger brother yet. He didn't even know the story. He's just assuming the worst. This guy's worthless. He's a failure. He's a sinner. He's not worthy and he's not redeemable. Church, this is so dangerous. This attitude will destroy relationships and it's wrong and it's sinful. Can I ask you a question? How do you view people? Are you quick to give the benefit of the doubt? Or do you love to sit back with your arms crossed and say, no, no, you got to prove yourself to me. you got to prove to me that you're worthy, right? We love the phrase, um, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. We think that makes us like really wise and really smart. Like, man, if you hurt me once, I'm always going to have my guard up. The problem is, is that Jesus says when someone strikes you in the cheek, turn and give them the other. And Jesus also says that if your brother sins against you up to 70 times in a day, 70 times seven, continue to forgive. So isn't by definition to allow someone to sin against you over and over and over again, you've got to be willing to give the benefit of the doubt and enter back into relationship? Are you willing to give the benefit of the doubt? Um, Are you rooting for other people's success? Or when other people fail in some twisted way, does it make you feel good about yourself? Or when other people succeed, does it make you feel inferior? This was self-righteousness. And here's what gets really, really destructive, especially in churches. The son wasn't just mad at the brother. 
but he was mad at the father for being kind to the brother. So not only am I out on you, but anyone who's nice to you, I've got to be out on you too. You see how divisive and destructive that can be? It's self-righteousness. And, and again, you need to understand Jesus is now giving a direct message to the Pharisees. And he's saying, watch your heart. Watch your self-righteousness. You're missing it. And you're just as prodigal as the rebellion that you're condemning the sinners for. You need to understand this. The younger brother's sin was a sin of passion. The older brother's sin was a sin of attitude. But now I want to introduce you to the third prodigal in this passage, and that's the father who represents God. I want to introduce you to the prodigal God. And here's why I call him a prodigal. It's up on the screen. Here's the definition of a prodigal. It's a person who spends money in a recklessly extravagant way. And that's why the younger son's commonly referred to as the prodigal son. And here's what I would argue. The father doesn't spend money in a recklessly extravagant way, but he sure shows grace in a recklessly extravagant way. He shows more grace than we can understand and what either son deserves. Let's see it for the younger son. Look at verse 20. It says, But he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and he embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Okay, a couple things you need to see. I'll look at verse 20. It says, but while he was a still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion. Again, if you take notes in your Bible, highlight that word compassion. Do you know that word in the New Testament, that Greek word, is only ever used to describe God's love towards us? It's only ever attributed to God. This is a supernatural love and compassion that's outside what we can even comprehend and understand. And then it says the father ran to greet his son. And again, in Jewish culture, for an old man to be seen running in public well, it was like a disrespectful thing. It, it just didn't happen. And then to do it, to embrace a prodigal who everyone in the town would have known that this kid was a screw-up who ran away, it would have brought shame to the father, but he didn't care. And then the son has this well-rehearsed line like, I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you. I don't even want to be your son anymore. I'm not worthy of that. I'll just be your servant. And the father's like, that's nonsense. Give him my best robe and give him a ring. Now you need to understand the ring was like the, the, the seal of a family. And I can imagine that maybe when the prodigal son left, he probably threw the ring at his dad and said, I'm out, I'm done with you. Can you imagine what it would have meant to receive that ring again? No, 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 you're my son. We're family. Listen, I think so often when we are in a season where we're running from God and where we, we're rebellious, we believe the lie that God will accept us back, but not as full sons and daughters. That we're going to have to earn it, that we're going to have to be sorry for a while, that we're going to be on the JV team. And, and that couldn't be farther from the truth. What Jesus is saying to the first group, listen, if you come to the Father, you're going to be met with full citizenship into the kingdom, full sons and daughters. The, the, the Father's love is extravagant. And look how he's gracious to the older one. Look at verse 28. He said, but the older son, but he was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. 
But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command and you've never given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. And it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Okay, so the first thing we see is that the father left the party to go sit with the self-righteous son. He didn't have to do that. He could have stayed in the party, but he's like, no, no, no. Where's my older son? I want him to be involved too. So he leaves the party, sits, and says he entreats him. He begs him, come enjoy the party. Come enjoy the celebration. And when the older son's super self-righteous and accuses him and accuses the brother, the father could have gotten angry and been like, fine, suit yourself. You're not invited anyways. But he doesn't do that. He says, son, look at how soft his language is with the older brother. Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. He's like, I'm with you and I love you. And and you can have everything that I have. And then he says, your brother. Notice the older brother doesn't want to call him a brother. But the father presses in. No, no, no. We're brothers. We're family. We're together. We're stronger together. Come celebrate what's happening in your brother's life. You're going to be better off for it. He's calling him in to what's best. And what Jesus is telling to the Pharisees is, listen, have God's heart towards other people. There's more joy to be found in celebrating what God is doing in broken people than to sit on the sidelines and say, man, I'm better than everyone else. The people who believe they're better than everyone else, guess what? They end up alone. And Jesus is saying, come into the party. The prodigal God, he does two things. He meets both sons exactly where they are, and he invites them into extravagant love. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. This is exactly what God is inviting us into this morning. Enter into my love. Be a part of my family. Whether you're far from me in rebellion or you're far from me in self-righteousness, the invitation is equal. And that leads me to the big idea this morning. It's this. I wanted to save it to the end. Um, It's that the solution for both prodigals is exactly the same. The solution to both prodigals is the exact same. And whether you're here and your heart is rebellious and there's things going on that need to change, or your heart is self-righteous, here's what we need to do. We need to see ourselves clearly. And that's what I'm going to beg you to do right now. Would you have the humility to look at yourself and see yourself clearly? Look at verse 17. I think this is one of the key verses in the entire story. So the son is left, the famine's come, he's hanging out with the pigs, but it says in verse 17, but when he came to himself, have you had that moment? where you've come to yourself and it's been like, man, what is going on? What am I doing? Why am I continuing to run after the same wells that only give me poison water? Have you come to the point 
where you're willing to say, I can't do it on my own anymore, and I need to hold on to Jesus Christ and abide in him and believe and trust that life and joy and fullness everlasting is found in relationship with our creator. It's why we, we were created. The reason we wither and die when we remove ourselves from Jesus is because we were created for that one thing, to know and love and hold tight to our creator. How much longer are you going to allow the withering to take place? And then we need to come home, right? That was the solution for both sons. The older one was far away. He came home, his father greeted him. The, the older son was home the whole time, but his heart wasn't. And yet the father sits with him and said, no, no, come inside. Stop hanging around the edges. Come into the house and celebrate what I am doing. Romans 8 says this, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul's describing home. If God's for us, who can be against us? And if God is willing to give Jesus Christ on our behalf, how much more will he graciously give us all good things? Like, here's what's amazing about this story. This whole story is the story of a father's supernatural love for his sons. And the one who's telling this story is the supernatural son of God who would die a supernatural death to defeat sin and Satan so we could once again experience the supernatural love of the father. And if we've seen Jesus and we've seen his love and the extents that God will go to draw us home, how could we think that home is anything other than safe? What's it gonna take? There's some in here right now who just think you need to get low and you need to get humble and you need to trust that you're not entering into a servant-master relationship. You're entering into a family that's good, that's safe, where you're loved. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, you're so good and you're so faithful. And I'm, I'm thankful for your word. And, and God, I, I would acknowledge that even as I read that story, my confidence in you grows because a story like that could only come from the mind of God. And for you to show us so clearly your love for, for both the rebellious and the self-righteous, which God, again, I confess, I live in both camps. And so would you do a new work in my heart would you reveal your love to me? God, would your spirit convict areas in my heart that I need to root out? God, would you create in me a longing to abide closer to you? We need you and we love you. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.